Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Taylor Swift, she knows a lot about shaking off hate. It's one of the ugly prices that everybody seems to pay today if they want to be famous, if they want to be in the public sphere, if they want to be known for doing something in the entertainment world or media world for sure. One of the things they have to deal with on a scale that I think is much larger than ever before seen is the scale of hate thrown at them all the time. And personally... I love that song that Taylor Swift wrote because I think about it myself all the time. Whenever anybody gives me something nasty, I sing that little song to myself, haters going to hate, every knock is a boost. But the truth is, and the problem is, that it isn't just about snarky social media and ugly kinds of, ugly kinds of hate. A lot of times that thought turns into action, turns into terrorism, turns into mass shootings turns into random acts of violence. And we see this in the United States on a scale of tremendous proportion, particularly compared to other developed countries. And we frankly don't know what to do about it. Matthew Williams has written a book on it. It's more like a scientific treatise on the science of hate, how prejudice becomes hate, and what we can do to stop it. Matthew Williams, welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show today. Hello. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure, and thank you for writing that book. Um, years ago, I read a book called The Science of Fear, Matthew, and The Science of Fear was all of it was a brilliant book, and it was a book that basically concluded that human beings are hardwired to, if they hear about an incident of a young girl who was taken out of her window on a second story and kidnapped, that they think that this is going to happen to them, and therefore, we have to have enormous policies to prevent it from happening again, even though the statistical reality of that happening is infinitesimal. 
So what we do as a science of fear is we magnify a specific thing that happens that goes to a place in our brain that says that we have to have an enormous reaction to it. And I was reading your book and thinking about the science of hate. And let me just begin by asking you, Matthew Williams, how did you go about thinking about this as a scientific enterprise to study? Well, it it actually stemmed from a very deeply personal experience. I was a victim of a hate crime myself about 20 years ago that completely reshaped my personal and professional life. Um, And I wanted to be a journalist um, before the hate crime, and then it happened to me. And I was filled with so many questions about why I was chosen um, on that on that day because of my identity that I, I had to study it scientifically. I, ha- I felt that I had to take a, a degree in criminology to understand the motivations of my attackers. And I spent the last 20 years figuring it out. And, and the book um, is a is a summary of everything I found out written in a hopefully I should I should I should hope a really crystal clear level headed way. It takes the heat out of it. It doesn't really engage in the politics very much. It's much more about what the current scientific evidence says about hatred and where it comes from. And it draws on a range of of, um, scientific disciplines. You have to do that to understand hatred because hatred is such a multifaceted phenomenon. So it delves into brain science, neuroscience. It does psychology, sociology, economics, uh, all the way through to how AI um, is reshaping society and, and generating more hatred than we've ever seen before. So it takes this really quite holistic view um, of hatred and uses all the available science at our disposal to understand it. So let me backtrack. You said that you were a victim of a hate crime. Yeah. And, I, and obviously you concluded it was a hate crime, meaning it wasn't motivated by a personal dislike of you and what you had done in the world. It was based on a category of you. Is that right? Yes, I'm a gay man, and I was actually standing outside a gay bar in London. So my attackers were waiting very patiently on that on that day for their victim. Um, I, I unfortunately was at random in a way the, the, their victim of choice that day, simply by being in that gay bar and standing outside of it at that moment in time. So uh, I know it was a, ha- a gay hate crime because they actually used a homophobic slur after after I was physically attacked and fell to the ground. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely a hate crime. But I didn't report it to the police at the time because back then there were no hate crime laws in the UK that were available to protect me, which is which is actually quite depressing. But it has changed now. Well, let's talk about that because I'm a lawyer and I want to talk about that a little oh, bit. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was learning law, right, there's the mens rea, there's the intent of the crime, and then there's the overt act. And you don't have a crime if it's just in your mind. Um, And you don't even have a crime sometimes if it's an act, if it's not an act that doesn't have a criminal intent compared, you know, with it, right? So an accident is not a crime, even though somebody could get killed. Okay, so you have to have the mens rea and the overt act. Yeah. So my question to you is, why wouldn't the... Um, so this person intended to hurt you and this person hurt you. Why wouldn't that be a crime that would be prosecuted as diligently as any other crime? One of the key problems with sort of the mens rea element of hate crimes is, is how do you get into the perpetrator's mind? Um, and that's really tough. And this is why we see so many hate crimes in the UK, um, 
go unpunished for the hate element because it's really hard to prove in a court of law. Um, uh, the same happens in the US, of course, um, that a person was motivated by some form of hostility or prejudice towards a person's identity. Um, it's only a slam dunk if, uh, say, they use a racial slur or a homophobic slur, whatever it might be, and that's witnessed by somebody else, uh, caught on CCTV or a video phone or something like that, um, or if the perpetrator has a history of of hateful attacks against this 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 group of people, and there's a pattern of behaviour there. So it's really tough to um, to work out whether or not there was true motivation. That's right. No, no. Um, that so that's my point. So my point is why wouldn't? Yeah. So what I'm trying to say is that we know that somebody intentionally assaulted you. Period. End. It was an intentional yeah. assault. Why wouldn't it be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law under existing laws for assault? Why wouldn't you report it to the police as an assault? I was actually fearful of the police and I was fearful of coming out as a gay man in front ah, of them. And, and okay. that's because of the marred relationship. Yeah, it's because of the marred relationship that that we have in the UK between policing and, and LGBTQ populations. It's very similar in the US, I, I assume. Um, and certainly is the case with, say, um, sort of anti-black hate crimes and marred relationships between that community, those communities and the police in the US. So reporting hate crime is actually quite, the rates for reporting hate crime are quite low and the book goes into why that might be the case mm. because of the distrust in some some policing organizations, which is which obviously deeply depressing, but is a reality for, for many victims. We're chatting with Matthew Williams on the science of hate. You begin your book, and I think it's a great place that you begin it, by talking about the natural human inclination for us to be clannish as humans. Whatever our physical appearance is, whatever our group is, it is a natural instinct of humans and animals to want to be with people that look like each other, that feel familiar to each other. And that is certainly yeah. scientifically shown. So talk to me a little bit yeah. about what you've learned about, about humans and our capacity to accept people that don't look like us and what it is about our brains that are triggered by people that don't look like us. Talk to us about the science of hate. Yeah, so a lot of the sort of biological elements of human beings that predispose them to prefer people like themselves um, is an evolutionary throwback. Basically, cooperation with like-minded people um, millions of years ago meant that you're more likely to survive, that, that your species is more likely to survive. So effective cooperation meant that you could ward off threats and dangers in your environment. Um, and other tribes. So over time, uh, that kept proving itself to be advantageous. And ultimately, that meant that 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 was hardwired into our brain. So we are a groupish species, like there are many primates are a groupish species, we go a bit nuts if, if we don't socialize and, and and we freak out if we're not part of a group. That's not necessarily a bad thing, uh, innately. Mm -hmm. uh, But it can be weaponized, it can be weaponized. So our groupishness, on its own is rather benign, but if we sense a threat or perceived threat from an outside group that's different from us, and we're told, say for example, by nefarious politicians maybe, that, that a threat is being posed to us from a, a group that's different from us, then our evolved tendency to be part of a group can turn into a more malignant feature. And all of a sudden we start discriminating against that outgroup because we perceive there to be a threat from them. So while we don't enter this world hating or having prejudices, we do have 
the innate capacity to develop them, but they have to be nurtured. They have to be they have to be inculcated throughout life for them to, to present themselves. So the important point of the book is that we don't start life hating. We can learn to hate, but we can also unlearn that hatred, which is a really important point I, I end the book on. It's very much like the song in South Pacific, right? You've got to be carefully taught, yeah. Oh, right? Yeah. You've got to be taught to oh, hate yes, and fear. You've got right. to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught, which, by the way, when they wrote that song in the 1950s was so controversial that many times they wanted to, uh, people oh, that yeah. produced the South Pacific, they wanted to get rid of the song, and Rogers and Hammerstein said emphatically, no, if you do our show, you have to do that song. But yes, that's the point of the song, and I get what you're saying. So um, I thought was really interesting in your book, we're chatting with Matthew Williams, is that you have some brain scans shown that lit up different parts of people's brains. Can you tell us about these experiments that were done? Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yes, yeah, so this was uh, the neuroscientific part of the of my research, and um, I'm no neuroscientist, but I spoke to some really, um, really talented neuroscientists based out of the University of New York, and um, they had done some interesting studies on scanning the brains of white people to identify how their brains reacted to the sight of black and white faces. The idea was that maybe um, people with prejudices against black folks, um, maybe their brains function differently to, to, to white folks that don't have those prejudices and they wanted to test that hypothesis. So they set up the experiment, they put them in the, in the brain scanner, uh, they showed the faces and lo and behold, um, folks that, that said that they, that they uh, had a prejudice against uh, black folks, a part of their brain that's responsible for regulating fear and threat lit up like a Christmas tree when mm. they saw a black face in the scanner, which is really depressing, obviously, and, and raised more questions than, than, than answers, to be fair. Um, but ultimately, what they found was that this wasn't something that was innate in this person. It was learnt, something that this person had been exposed to over time through culture and socialization had effectively programmed their brain to react in that way. And when they saw a, a black face in the scanner, the brain was was initiating this kind of red alert, you know, this threat warning. Um, but very quickly, interestingly, 
the very smart part of their brains, what's called the prefrontal cortex, the, the, the executive control area, put the brakes on that resolute quite rapidly and said, look, this is a face in a scanner. You're not actually seeing a person in real life. And it regulated the, the behavior, uh, the signal in the brain. This, is, this kind of research is fascinating. It isn't the answer to stopping hate in any way, but it does tell us how the brain is operating. Um, but the important point is the brain learns uh, the information it's fed. Uh, so ultimately, if, if a person is not fed bias information through culture, then this pattern wouldn't emerge. Matthew Williams, in your study about hate, did you find that the expression of hateful language has exploded or changed in the last 20 years? Yes. Um, a, big, a big part of the book is examining the role of social media and the Internet in the acceleration of, of hatred on hate, or hate speech, if you like, on, online. Um, because social media is so unregulated, uh, because people who use social media may feel disinhibited, because mm. of the nature of online communication. Yeah, the anonymity of it, for sure, for sure. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, the fact that you think no one's going to do anything about it, the police aren't going to be knocking at my door, the, the platforms won't do anything about it, um, no one's going to challenge me. If they do, it's not going to have any consequence to me. If people feel freed up to express these these kinds of opinions online, they wouldn't probably express them in, in, the, in the local shopping mall they, or the local bar or on the streets, but they will express them online because of this feeling of disinhibition. So unfortunately, uh, people who, who engage in this kind of activity for various reasons use it as a megaphone to, to express their frustrations on the world. Very often we find that, that the expression of hatred online is patterned around what we call trigger events. So there are things that, that see a lot more hate speech get produced, um, like political uh, elections, very high-profile court cases, terror attacks. These all seem to promote um, the expression of online hatred because of an increased sense of threat that's normally associated with those kinds of trigger events. Are we seeing a... So, so that's a fact. So that's it, and that's free speech to a large degree, and that's the ugly side of humans and their dysregulated impulses and their venting mechanisms. That's one piece. But do we see a thread? Yeah. Do we see a cause and effect between that and, for example, the extraordinary data that is coming out about the mental health and depression of young people? Can we draw a line between... Yeah this unfettered expression and a real impact on a generation of young people. Yeah, unfortunately, the evidence is now emerging and it's not a pretty picture. And um, what we're seeing is that exposure to social media or excessive use of social media by younger generations is statistically associated in a causal pattern with um, mental health problems. Um, we're seeing it in research in the United States, in the UK, and in Europe more broadly. Um, and we're also seeing research emerging that shows that online hate speech is being associated with uh, offline hate crime. So where we see a bubbling up of, of uh, say, homophobic or racist or anti-immigrant sentiment on social media, um, there are 
there are occasions where that will spill out onto the streets. And so it, 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 in one way, it's acting like an early warning mechanism. So we mm. can kind of monitor social media to see where it might tip over. I agree but with it's that. also acting as an, as an accelerator. It's kind of, you know, people are winding themselves up online. They're being increasingly polarized. Um, algorithms don't help with this because they push more extreme content your way just to keep you engaged and so they can make more money off you. And what that ultimately ends up doing is potentially causing offline hate crimes, which become can become physically violent and obviously incredibly incredibly damaging so there is it's i think it's important not to separate out what happens online and what happens offline there is a link there's a continuum between what we say online and what can happen offline and we need to be fully aware of the consequences of that we're chatting with matthew williams well as we're fully aware of that we also have to be aware that we want to live in a society that allows people to speak that that is a fundamental human value that most of us really cherish, even if that speech is vile in some respects. So I'm curious to know, with your research and your deep thinking about this and your own personal experience as a victim of a hate crime, what are the solutions, if any, that you would want to see in a free society, not in a totalitarian society, but in a free society? Yeah. Well, I agree with your point about freedom of expression. That is a fundamental right that we all cherish, regardless of, of um, whether we're in the UK or the US. I think I think we have parity and, and to some extent on that issue. Um, but in the UK, there's, there is, a, I think, a, a potentially more sensitive interpretation or assessment of freedom of speech and, and what its limits might be. So... Like you can be offensive. Being offended is part of, of freedom of expression. We have to accept that being offensive is absolutely fine. It's where it becomes damaging to another person where I think we have to draw the line. That's my perspective. So if it becomes grossly offensive um, and has the potential to cause deep psychological wounds, then I think we enter the realm of criminality. Um, I know that the laws are different between the UK and the US on this, but from just from a what we call a zemiological perspective, you know, which looks at the harms that are caused by things like speech on society, a line has to be drawn somewhere. So I think it's a really difficult place. It's really difficult to find where that, that line is placed, but there has to be a line somewhere. Otherwise, we're just going to see more extreme polarization online and more of that spilling onto the streets. What we do to resolve it, I think, is we have to empower everyday Internet users to stand up against the kinds of speech that mm. they find grossly offensive. I would agree. So with empowering that. users. Yes. Yeah, yes. I think it's, it's not the role of the government or the state or, or the police to do this. I think if we empower ourselves as a community of Internet users uh, to stand up against, become upstanders instead of bystanders when we see something online mm. and we do it safely, so we're safeguarding and we're not getting ourselves into trouble or risk, and we, we teach our kids how to deal with this stuff in a really healthy way, then I think we, we achieve a step towards solving some of that problem. And, you know, if, if millions of people were, were educated on how to best deal with this stuff when they encounter it online in a safe way and in the most effective way, and some of our experiments in our lab kind of go down the route of working out what the most effective way of engaging in counter-speech is, then I think we'd see a reduction in hate speech online because... There are so many users online, you know, billions of users of social media. If only a fraction of those were to stand up against what they were, they were hearing and listening to, then we'd see, I think, a, a, a reduction in hate speech. And some early research suggests that 
around 30% of folks who use hate speech stop using it if if they are presented with counter speech by another internet user, which is a really, really That's powerful. That's a fascinating, yeah, yes. Yeah. And I don't think we know enough about that. I will tell you, Matthew Williams, author of The Science of Hate, that I interviewed a legislator in Connecticut yet, uh, last week, and I think this may be the first bill introduced of its kind in the United States, where she has introduced a bill that would uh, ban all uses of social media for 16 and under kids in Connecticut unless their parents opted in. So the default would be wow. they were not able to use it. No Facebook, no Snapchat, no you know Instagram, uh, no TikTok, unless the parent wow. said, okay, and she wants to do this. Um, and now I don't know if the bill will get passed. I don't know how enforceable it would be. But she feels very strongly that as a matter of public policy, it's time to start thinking about these possible solutions to this epidemic of mental health crisis that we have with young people. And it is an epidemic. It's a very real problem, at least in the United States. Oh, it is. Yeah, uh, it's ter- it's it's terrifying. It's terrifying if I'm yeah. if I'm if I'm frank, yeah. but that seems like uh, uh, you know a valid proposition. Uh, whether or not it will pass, it's it's quite extreme. Um, but maybe we're we're entering the realm of that kind of legislation. I mean, in the UK, we have the online safety bill, which is which will hold um, the CEOs of these companies liable to prison sentences if they don't wow. uh, comply. You know, so. Yeah, it's so. Watch this space. You know, things are moving, um, and it's a very, it's a, it's a very turbulent space right now. So, we've got to do something. So, I think everything's on the table, um, and everything's to play for. Matthew Williams, the science of hate. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I uh, appreciate your contribution pleasure. in all of this. Thank you so much. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at Lisa at LisaWexler.com.